Hello and welcome to the history of the cards. Episode 1. Not quite the beginning. In the beginning. But wait. When is the beginning? And I mean the beginning, not just a beginning. You see, the Copts do not have a traditional beginning, like the founding of Rome or the American Revolution. No, we may as well start in 3100 BC, 5000 years ago, when the first pharaoh unified Egypt as one country with a central government. And that would be the closest thing to their beginning. But since I have no plans in doing that, and there is a good podcast already out there discussing Egypt from its founding to Cleopatra, I have to pick a sort of a convenient marker to start the history of the Copts. My convenient marker is the death of Cleopatra and the annexation of Egypt by Rome in Terry BC. But this event by no means represents the beginning of the Copts. No, it is just a beginning. A transition point that is one of many on our road. The next transition point would probably be St. Mark the Apostle coming to Egypt in the 50-60s AD and the traditional story of the founding of the Coptic Church. That would be their beginning as far as the Coptic Church history is concerned, and indeed a seminal event for the Coptic identity. But as we will see, the Copts had a long way to go after St. Mark's arrival to the formation of their distinct Eastern-religious identity. Other contender events that shaped the Copts and could possibly mark their beginning is the elevation of Pope Demetrius, the ascension of Diocletian, the Council of Chalcedon, and of course, the arrival of the Arabs. The earliest of these events, the elevation of Pope Demetrius, is significant because, in a way, it started the international influence of the Alexandrian Church beyond Egypt, through Pope Demetrius himself, his successors, and the teachers of the theological school of Alexandria, such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen. With that being said, nothing really says that beginning like starting at year one. Yes, you heard right. The Copts have their own calendar, and it has a year one in it. A pretty nice beginning, right? The Coptic calendar, in an ironic twist, starts with the reign of one of its greatest villains, Diocletian. The reign of Diocletian, and especially its aftermath, is probably the closest thing to the beginning of the Copts. By then, Christianity has made serious headway in rural Egypt. Coptic as a written language was well developed and spreading, and the Alexandrian church, de facto and de jure, was the Coptic church. So here you have it. I will start with Augustus and end with Diocletian in the first batch of episodes. In between them, native Egyptians will become Copts, pagan temples will become churches, hieroglyphics will become Coptic, and Greeks, Jews, and Egyptians were all transformed under the yoke of the Roman rule. After this batch of episodes, I may take a small break and I will release the next batch of episodes, which will dive deep into interesting figures such as 
Constantine the Great, and by far the greatest historical figure in the Coptic history, San Athanasius. Okay, so let's try this again. In the beginning, there was a great desert and an even greater river that divided it in half. People started to settle by the river, which gave them their sustenance. Families became villages, and villages became towns, and towns became cities and regions. The regions became two, and then one legendary king unified the two regions and founded Egypt sometime around 3100 BC. Through 31 different dynasties following him, an intricate, sophisticated culture developed. It was shaped by external invasions and civil wars, religious sophistication and superstition, military expansion and later defeat. And after close to 3,000 years of being ruled by its natives, with the usual interruptions and caveats, of course, that all came to an end. The Persians came first, then the Greeks was Alexander the Great, and finally Augustus and the Romans. The last Greek ruler was the famous Cleopatra, who outmaneuvered her co-ruler and younger brother in a civil war with the help of a certain Julius Caesar and became the sole ruler of Egypt, with naturally the protection and the help of Rome's legions. To her credit, she was actually the only Greek ruler over 300 years who bothered to learn how to speak the native tongue, and she tried to add the native Egyptians to her power base using the religious establishment. But then again, she practically invited the Romans to annex Egypt, and if Julius Caesar was not murdered by the Roman Senate, he would likely did so at the next politically opportune moment. But quickly after her alliance with the Romans, Julius Caesar was assassinated, and a Roman civil war ensued. At one side was his trusted general, Mark Antony, and his adopted son, Octavian, and on the other side, his assassins and other members of the Senate. The Mark Antony slash Octavian side won, and they divided the spoils of victory. Mark Antony got the east with Egypt and of course Cleopatra, while Octavian got the west with Rome. But in a typical Roman fashion, when it was politically convenient, another civil war ensued between Mark Antony and Cleopatra on one side, and Octavian on the other. A naval battle in Actium took place in 31 BC in modern-day Greece. Mark Antony and Cleopatra were defeated and fled to Alexandria. In the spring of 30 BC, Octavian advanced toward Egypt from Syria, and one of his generals, Cornelius Gallus, later first prefect of Egypt, advanced from the west, from Cyrenica in modern-day Libya. Facing defeat, Mark Antony and then Cleopatra commit suicide. The son of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar tries to escape, but he gets caught and killed by Octavian. He was a Caesar, and as Octavian puts it, two Caesars is one too many.
The other kids of Cleopatra, from Mark Antony, are shipped to Rome, where the two boys disappear from history, and the girl goes on and becomes a queen of a Roman puppet kingdom of what is modern-day Morocco, Mauritania. And thus ends the Macedonian dynasty and the start of Roman Egypt. With Octavian firmly in charge of Lower Egypt, i.e. the Delta, he takes a tour of his newly acquired territory. He visits the tomb of Alexander the Great, where supposedly he breaks off his mummified nose. But he refuses to visit the Ptolemy's graves, making clear that there is a new dog in town. Then he goes on and visits Memphis, the capital of the Egyptian religious establishment, where the god Abyss, an actual living bull, lives attended by many priests and a highly influential high priest. That religious establishment was very close to the Ptolemies, and the Ptolemies used them to legitimize their rule and deified them as pharaohs, living gods. And in return, the Ptolemies favored them with new temples and a share of Egypt material riches. They even allowed a member of the high priest family to marry into the Ptolemies. By this point, the high priest position was hereditary. Octavian, flashing his political genius, refuses the coronation and associated honoring of the gods. The official reason given is that he would make offering to gods, but not to beasts. However, the actual political reason is that at this point, Octavian was creating an image of a successful senator who is first in honors among his colleagues. Not an all-powerful king and a living god, as the Egyptian priests would have him do. Not to mention, his propaganda machine has rallied against Mark Antony for exactly that kind of behavior. Either way, Octavian was just coming out of a civil war and wanted to consolidate his position in Rome. Being crowned as an Egyptian pharaoh would have made his relationship with the Senate very difficult. From the point of view of the Egyptians, that was a huge change. The religious establishment would have easily spent the annexation as the creation of a new dynasty and a new pharaoh. Therefore, everything is pretty much the same, and since nothing have changed, keep showing up the temple with your offerings and obey the living God. Complicating the religious establishment position is that the high priest died two days before the conquest, and if they wanted to keep the position in the family, they would have to play nice with Octavian, which they tried to do, but Octavian had other plans. Octavian kept the high priest position vacant for two and a half years, probably dividing and splitting the priesthood in their quest to compete for the position. When he finally appointed a successor, it was a cousin of the deceased high priest. Masterfully, a relative, see he would not completely antagonize the priests, but not his direct successor, presumably his son, to assert his power. On top of that, the new title of the high priest was the prophet of Caesar. 
in an addition to his services to Abis, he was also responsible for the cult of the Caesar. By this point, Octavian was given the title Augustus by the Senate in Rome, and he did not need to worry about the political backlash of being worshipped as a god. After this high priest died, no more native high priests are recorded, but rather a new position came about, the high priest of Alexandria and all of Egypt, naturally occupied by a Roman citizen appointed by the emperor. It became an administrative position to regulate the taxation of the Egyptian priests and temples, rather than an actual priest. But the Roman administrative apparatus continued to use the native religious establishment in Egypt when it saw it politically convenient, so temples were still updated and new ones were being built. But in a way, the annexation of Egypt was a seminal moment where the old Egyptian gods started to die. Octavian stayed in Egypt less than a year, and he went back to Rome in the autumn of 30 BC. Before he left so, he instituted a series of legal changes that fundamentally changed the fabric of Egypt's society. In order to appreciate the magnitude of the changes Augustus made, we have to take a deep dive down the rabbit hole of identity, and how did the various people living in Egypt perceive themselves and their neighbors. Egypt, and especially Alexandria at the time of Augustus, was a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. In one of the ancient speeches preserved, we see an address to a crowd in Alexandria being made to Greeks, Italians, Syrians, Libyans, Sicilians, Ethiopians, Arabs, Skazians, Persians, and Indians. A kind of ancient New York or London, if you wish to see it this way. So how did the people living in Egypt perceive themselves? Well, if you were a rural, illiterate farmer, you probably would not spend too much time dwelling on such questions. And maybe every once in a while, some government official will pass by and call you an Egyptian thinking he's insulting you, but you just move on and keep working, the irrigation canals need cleaning, the seeds need sowing, and the grounds need to be turned over. You go to your local temple and festivals, you offer your sacrifice to the local Egyptian deity, and in a world where the average mortality was between 20 to 25 years old, you count yourself lucky if you made it to 40, and by then you may even see your grandkids. People like you are all over Egypt, and numerically you are about 80% of a population that is around 5 million. The Romans coming had probably little effect on you. You still went to the village elders for problems and solved problems according to your customs. There were some new taxes, but oh well, there's always new taxes. But what if you are not? What if you are one of those 20% living in the city who can read and write? Well, the Romans just upended your world. You see, when the Ptolemies were around, Social and material advancement was only possible if you were Greek. But that was not a problem for the enterprising Egyptian. 
if you are smart enough and was able to learn Greek and acted Greek, you became Greek and the doors of social advancement opened up. And even if that was too difficult, well, you can always marry right and move up. So in essence, gradually, over the 300 years, the Ptolemies were in charge. The elite Egyptian city dwellers began to see themselves as Greek. And instead of Greek and Egyptian being an ethnic or a national distinction, as we would think of nowadays, it became more or less a class distinction. If you're an upper class, rich city dweller, you became Greek. And if you were a rural, poor, illiterate farmer, you became Egyptian. And if that wasn't complicated enough for you, let's take it a little further. Culturally, those Hellenized Egyptians, or Greeks, were straddling both the Egyptian and the Greek cultures. So they learned Homer and received classical Greek education, yet they worshipped Isis, an Egyptian goddess, and Serapis, a combo god of Osiris, the Egyptian god of the underworld, and Abyss, the Memphis bull mentioned earlier. They wrote and communicated in Greek, yet except the super elite among them, they also spoke Egyptian. So what would happen if you accidentally called a bunch of these guys Egyptian? Well, you just incited a mob riot, and you better start running, because they fully intent on murdering you. This is not by any means an exaggeration. In a typical Greek versus Jew riot of that time, the reason reported for the riot was a Greek insulting the Jews and calling them, wait for it, Egyptians. It's on account of their strong feelings about the subject. From now on, I will call these Hellenized Egyptians Greeks. Now, to go all the way down the rabbit hole, in addition to the identity labels of Greek and Egyptian, there were also Jews and the priests. The Jews, who play a part in our story, did not see themselves as Greek or Egyptian, but they were mainly upper-class city dwellers. The Jewish community in Egypt was the largest outside of Judea and highly influential. In Alexandria, the Jews were 20-30% to 30 of the population and clashed repeatedly with the Greek residents. We will go back to them multiple times. The priests, on the other hand, clearly saw themselves as Egyptians, and a significant portion of them could be considered upper class and educated. However, they slowly lost their power and wealth with the Roman less reliant on them to keep the masses quiet and paying taxes, starting with Octavian legal changes. So now we have come full circle. Octavian legal changes that rocked the fabric of society. The first thing Octavian did was to take away the Senate or the ruling council from the Greeks in Alexandria, essentially taking away the right of self-governance. And if that was not enough insult, he gave the Jews the right of self-governance via council of elders, as well as many other benefits that were traditionally reserved to only the Greek citizens of Alexandria. But crucially, he did not give them the right to be citizens. 
As a result, the Greeks constantly agitated to get their senate back, especially that the uncivilized and biased Jews have one. And the Jews constantly agitated to become Alexandrian citizens and to be with equal status with the treacherous Greeks. The official reason given is Octavian's appreciation for the help that the Jews provided in his conquests. But as we will see, it was just but a small part of Egypt-wide program of divide, conquer, and collect taxes. From this point on, the city of Alexandria, most influential residents, were divided, and so each other as enemies appealing to their neutral master, the Romans. They competed with one another who can exalt and give more honor to their shared master to take their side. The Greeks and the Jews of Alexandria clashed repeatedly, and in their enmity to each other, they surrendered the walls of their city and country to the Romans. But again, with his typical political genius, Octavian did not completely antagonize the Alexandrians and accept them from the bull tax ordained on mostly the rest of Egypt. He also gave them free grain as well as making the Alexandrian citizenship a requirement for any resident of Egypt to become a Roman citizen. He also tried to found another city four miles away from Alexandria, Nicobolus, perhaps to lessen and weaken the influence of Alexandria, but his project failed and the new city ended up being the camp of the Roman garrison. For his next change, he moved to the gnomes and the cities of Egypt. The Nome was the administrative district of Egypt for thousands of years. There were 36 to 50 gnomes, depending on the circumstances and the time, but the traditional number is 42 gnomes. Each gnome had a capital that was by the ancient standard a large city. In addition to the gnomes and their capitals, there was two additional important cities, plus of course Alexandria that Octavian marked out and gave them special treatment. But this will have to wait until next week, when Octavian will further divide the inhabitant of Egypt, slowly close all avenues for social mobility, and his appointed prefect militarily suppresses an upper Egypt rebellion. Thank you for listening, and I'll appreciate it if you share and spread the word about the podcast. Farewell, and until next week.